0: In order for them to accept that, well, something, something wrong. Okay? Like, you can look, look at the mess of society on every level, right? You can see some of the national things going on, but even in our interpersonal lives and, and our family networks, whatever it is, there's, there's something in your life that you go, if that, something's not right right there. Something's right, not right right there. And what's interesting is we can all agree that something's not right. And sometimes we can all agree what the thing that isn't right is. But that does not mean that the chain of events stop. So what's the problem? If everybody agrees something ain't right, and everybody agrees we all need to change, but we don't actually do it, what's the problem? See, the Bible teaches that everyone, to some degree or another, is guilty of sin, and that everyone has a sinful nature. You ask somebody if they ever sinned and they say no, well, they just did. Okay, okay. But beloved, Christ came to fix the core of the issue, our fallen human nature. Now we're going to look at Romans 3, verses 1 through 20. It reads, So what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. What then? If some were unfaithful, Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God all have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their path, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be Shut, and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in His sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Amen. I wasn't too happy, was it? But it's God's word. We got to dig in it. We got to dig in it. So I'm going to do a a little short recap. A little short recap uh, for the first two chapters of Romans. There's two big ideas two big ideas. The first one is that we sin because of idolatry, because of worshiping something other than God. In other words, we value something. Maybe it's a thing. Maybe it's an idea. We value something above God and his law. And it could be something simple and benign. Maybe it's that we value winning at all costs. Now, it's, it's all right to value winning But if you value winning at all costs, it's going to make you do actions that transgress God's law. It also has one other major point. Even those who know God's law break it consistently. Even those who know God's law break it consistently. So it's not a result of insufficient information. It's not that, oh, I didn't know my bad no 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 you did know now if this is true the logical next question is if everybody does wrong and everybody even if you know what not even if you know what to do you still do wrong if that's the question then the question is well well, well, is there any benefit of religious heritage is there any benefit and that's exactly what it gets to in verse one so what advantage do the jews have if they have the law they don't do it What, what does it matter or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. See, see if we are all sinners, why does a Christian heritage even matter? You get it in that, that phrase. They were entrusted with the very words of God. Though my knowledge doesn't save me, it is good and true and leads me to salvation. Look, 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, it reads this, but as for you, this is Paul talking to Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. His mother and his grandmother taught him the scriptures. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. See, beloved, a, a heritage of the scriptures is important. The way of life is set right before us. The scriptures are able to make us wise to salvation. And there is a danger no matter where you come from, no matter what your heritage is, there is a danger of becoming overly familiar with the Holy Word. See, if, if we know it, if we know if we heard it, somebody so-and-so told us a long time ago, we don't actually cherish what is being said. We're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the fact is, you have to cherish the word and apply it. Another way to think about it is that you would look intently and ponder. Another way to, to cherish something is through repetition. Now, I don't know about you, sometimes, sometimes I like to walk around uh, my block, walk around uh, the streets, and what I, well, sometimes I'll see a dude with headphones in, right? And he's in the zone, you know what I'm saying? He's, he's in the zone. And if I look at his lips, he's, you know, whatever the song is, he's just, he's just going at it, going at it. Now, how many times has that man heard that song? Probably a lot. And, and it, let's be real, the song's probably talking about something crazy, <laughs> right? But think about the rehearsal of that. The rehearsal of that, those words over and over in his mind, and how it sinks deep into his heart and how it changes how he thinks and changes how he reacts. Beloved, that is how the scriptures are supposed to be to us. Yeah, I know you heard it. I heard it, too. But if you repeat, 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 look, read, 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 it it changes our minds and and sinks down and, and changes our hearts. So that's why it's so important to pay attention to the Scriptures. That's why we preach the way that we preach, verse by verse, because it doesn't matter what I say. I can't change your heart. But the Scriptures can. Look at verse 3. We're going to see that God remains faithful and righteous. God remains faithful and righteous. What then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? I'm going to put that in layman's terms, okay? He's saying, well, what about them hypocrites? What about the people who know what they're supposed to do, but don't do it? See, if if people who know God's law do not do what it does, does that make God unfaithful? That's the question. If people know what to do, they know what God said, and they don't do it, does it make God unfaithful? See, many people will leave church because they see people who claim to follow Christ, but their actions don't actually correspond. Now, the question is, if you knew somebody who was really, really bad at math, would you then conclude that math was bad? I don't, I don't trust no numbers anymore. <laughs> no, no, no. You'd be like, well, he, he didn't do it right. <laughs> you know, like, some, the, the, the math itself is not the issue. It's The person who's trying to do the math it is not doing it right. Beloved, if we know God's law and we don't obey, that doesn't make God's law wrong or God unrighteous. It actually vindicates him. God's righteousness is shown through his judgment. See, we see the results of disobedience and it proves the truthfulness of God's word. Now, remember, this is taking it back. Back in Romans 1, he says that, that God's wrath is shown through giving people the things that they want. Through giving people the sinful things that they want and them Suffering the consequences. Has anybody seen that? I didn't seen it. Thank you. All right, so the reason that we, we see that, it shows the truthfulness of God's word. That if we don't live according to it, we suffer the consequence. But if his, if his judgment against sin shows his righteousness, does that mean we should sin more? That's the question. The question is, well, if, if me sinning, it shows that God is righteous because I have to read the consequences of my sin. Well, I can just do what I want to because that just shows God's goodness. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, God will judge fairly. See, we still get the consequences of our disobedience. Look, look at verse eight grace is not an excuse for sin. Look at verse eight. And why not just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do evil, so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. So we know something about God's judgment, but we also know something about God's grace. Yeah? God has grace. God has grace. And so often we put his grace against his standards and say that his standards don't really matter. I'm going to tell you how it works out. Somebody comes to you, they say, I sinned and this, that, and the other way. And you go, it's okay, it don't matter. Don't worry about it. It's okay, it's okay. Now, you're probably, I know you're trying to do something good. I ain't trying to play you. But the, the idea is this. It's not okay because grace actually costs something. Grace costs something. So, so let's imagine you, you had a friend whose parents were rich, and they went to the mall, and they were just going hard, buying everything, buying stuff they didn't need. And you go, hey, man, ain't You kind of spend a lot of money, ain't you? Like, it's daddy's money. Would that be a good thing? That that don't mean you just got to spend it, though. It still costs somebody something. Right? So because God has grace, doesn't mean that's an excuse for sin. Because we understand, what does grace cost? The blood of Christ Jesus. See, this teaching, this teaching that because of grace, it doesn't matter what we do. It is false and hurtful. It leaves a bitter taste in everyone's mouth for the one who reaps the consequences and the ones who look and go, that dude's talking about God's grace, but his life don't look nothing like it. We have to watch out for people twisting the scriptures. That's what they were doing. They were twisting the scriptures. He continues and goes that everyone is under the power of sin. Look at verse 9. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So the question is, is, are those who have a religious culture, maybe a Christian upbringing, their their parents was saints. Does that make you better off? No. The answer is no. Because everyone is under the power of sin. One of the technical terms is, is, is a, a theological term is called indwelling sin. Indwelling, something that's it's not something over there. It's not that person. It's not that thing. There's something inside of you. There's something inside of you. So it, it, it's, it's not something outside of you. That, that, you can't say, well, they made me do it. If they hadn't, if he wouldn't, if she wouldn't, no, 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 no. It's an inner compulsion. And you know this to be true even when you do what is right, because did you not have to fight to do it? When you do what's right, you probably had to go, why, 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 are you, why were you fighting against yourself? There's an inner compulsion to do wrong. What this leads to is this doctrine that is not a particularly happy doctrine. it's a biblical one. It's called Total Depravity. Look at verse 10. As it is written, no one is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and righteousness are in their path, and the path of peace they, they, do not, they have not known. There's no fear of God for their eyes. Now, if you, were, if you had a Bible, if you were, were paying attention, you would see a lot of quotation marks, because what Paul was doing there, he's quoting different Old Testament verses. It's not something he's making up. He didn't make it up. He's like, well, let me just tell you how people... No, he's quoting all throughout the Old Testament of the Scripture's witness about the human condition. See, see, I want to read you something. This is from our, from our confessional statement. It says, we believe that Adam, the first man, made in the image of God, distorted that image and forfeited his original blessedness for himself and all his progenity, the people that came after him, by falling into sin through Satan's temptation. As a result, all human beings are alienated from God, corrupt in every aspect of their being, Physically, mentally, volitionally, emotionally, spiritually, and condemned finally and irrevocably to death apart from God's own gracious intervention. The idea is this is that sin affects every single aspect of humanity. It's not saying that people are the worst person they could be, they're just saying that there's no aspect of your life that is not affected by sin. So even, even we can look at the desires. Are my desires sinful? Well, do you have to fight your desires sometimes? Do you have to fight what you know to be a wrong desire? So there's there's something corrupt in the desires. What what about my thoughts? Are, are my thoughts? Are my thoughts? Are they uh, are they sinful? Well, not not all the time, but every now and then I get caught in some faulty sinful thinking. Well, if I do this, then I get that. But the that that I get is is bad. Yeah. Are my words affected by sin? Ask my wife. Okay, you know, words are just you know slip out. You're like, oh, I wish I could just pull that one on back in. Yeah. Are my actions, are, are our actions affected by sin? See, we do stuff that hurts others. It makes people mad. Listen, this is not this is not something that is a happy truth, but it's true nonetheless. There is not any aspect of our being, any aspect of our personhood that is not affected from one degree or another with sin. This is a major problem. And when you look at the world and you go, something ain't right. Who is to blame? Everybody. Everybody is to blame. The law exposes, and look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law. So that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. Who is the subject of God's judgment? The whole world. Look at verse 20. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Scripture's verdict is that everybody is guilty. And he he says this again. More knowledge of the law only leads to more condemnation. Let me tell you something. It is a dangerous thing to learn the scriptures and learn about God with no intent to obey. The reason it is dangerous, if you learn about God with no intent to obey, you are only increasing your culpability. You can't say you didn't know if you studied. So the, so the fact of the matter is that more knowledge of what I should do actually increases my guilt. Now, we kind of know this to be true now. Let's say if you're not feeling too well and you ask your friend, you're like, do I got something? They're like, I don't know. Uh, but if you go to your doctor, you say, do I got something? He says, I don't know. You're like, well, nah, man, you're supposed to, no, you're supposed to know. You went to school and stuff. You know what? You'd be kind of mad, right? With more knowledge comes more responsibility. Same thing is true with the scriptures. There's this, no one is justified knowing more. This whole idea of justified, it means being, being seen as right in God's sight. It's like, well, how does God see me? And some things like, well, if I try, if I try really, really, really hard, then God would be like, man, you're balling. But if sin affects every aspect of our hearts and lives, we can't, we can't cling to that. See, we need help because it's not simply our choices that are wrong, but our nature Right? If it's, if it's something inside that can't nobody see, but it's in your heart, we need some extra help. <laughs> now, listen, you need to understand this is not how God created it to be. This is not how God created it to be. This is from our doctrinal statement. We believe that God created human beings, male and female, in his own image. Adam and Eve belong to the creator order that God himself declared to be very Good, serving as God's agents to care for, manage, and govern creation, living in holy, devoted fellowship with the Maker. It, God did not create us sinful. That was not his intention. But through our, through Adam's choices and from birth, we have this nature. That is, that is crooked. So, the, so, so I, I want you to understand. I'm, I'm going to say it again because I want it to be clear. What is the problem? Some people say the problem was, well, we don't know enough. Is that the problem? No, that's not the problem. Well, some people say the problem is, well, it was a mistake. Is that the problem? That's not the problem either. What is the, the problem? It's not just that we sin sometimes. It's that in our nature... There is a crookedness to it that predisposes us to sinful inclinations. That is the problem. That's how deep the issue is. Now, if the problem is that deep, then we need a solution that's pretty strong, yeah? If the problem is that fundamental to our nature, we need somebody to recreate us. See, Christ redeemed humanity. I want you to understand this. Have you ever thought about why Jesus had to come and live in the flesh? Like, couldn't he have just, you know, did, you know snapped his fingers? Couldn't he just say, are you forgiven? Like, why, why did he come in the flesh? See, we need somebody to get up in our human nature to redeem it and to fix it. See, the Son of God came. And the scripture says that he put on human flesh every, every, every part of the nature that, that you, it's like, oh, this is so frustrating to me. Christ himself adopted that, and he made it new. In other words, we need a factory reset. You ever been messing with your phone and it's so messed up? You're like, I just, man, I just, I'm a, I got to erase all this stuff. I need to press the button because I can't figure it out. Listen, the word became flesh. And took on our human nature. He t- look, the one who was limited, limitless, became limited. The one who experienced no frustration and pain experienced frustration and pain. You need to understand not only the miracle of the cross, but the miracle that God himself will come and live in the flesh in the first place. And the reason he did that is because there was something faulty going on. And he had to do a factory reset. And so he came to do it in person. The word took on flesh and he took on our human nature. One of the church fathers, he says, whatever is not assumed is not healed. What he means is this. Christ took on human emotions, human will, human thoughts, everything that that means uh, that you are human. Christ took it on and get this. He redeemed every aspect of it. Did he redeem desires? He could say something. I I don't never do anything unless I see the father do it. I want your will to be done. Did he he redeem thoughts? All these times people came to him with various thoughts and he always reasoned with the scriptures. Did he redeem words? Every time he spoke, he spoke the truth and love. Did he redeem actions? Remember that when he was in the garden, you remember when he was tempted with facing God's wrath and he said, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass. But not my will. But your will. And he obeyed to the point of death. See, he went to such great lengths because the problem was that deep. See, he died, though he was perfect. He he obviously didn't deserve the death. He he suffered the death in our place for our sin and for our sinful nature. And he was resurrected so that, that we could be forgiven and healed. Y'all remember how he went around healing people and raising people from the dead, doing crazy stuff like that? Man, he uses that same healing and resurrection power on our nature to make us new. The scriptures can say this, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now works in you, Christian. Now, if you understand the death of the problem, you're like, yeah, I need that. I need that resurrection power to work on me. This is what he gives. I got to read you one one crazy scripture. You might have missed this. This is 2 Peter 1.4. It says, By these he has given us great and precious promises. Listen to this. So that through them you may share in the divine nature. Did y'all catch that? That you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world. Because of evil, listen. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He took on our nature. Get this, so that we can take on His. That sounds crazy, huh? He took on our nature, so that we could take His nature. That we could look more like Him. That we could be restored to the fact that He created us in God's image, and we're being recreated in the image of Christ Jesus. The perfect one. This is what the Lord has done. So the problem is bad, y'all. But the solution is more than sufficient. It can be yours if if you would just confess what what we all agree is true. We all agree that's true. I'm wrong. I did bad stuff. I do bad stuff because it just comes out of me naturally. And I need a savior. Lord Jesus, the one who died for my sins and rose again, would you save me? Now, listen, the world world is a stage to see the doctrine of sin on full display, right? And and we have to humbly come to Jesus for change and forgiveness. It's not through our effort. We're not going to do better than Jesus. But we trust in him and he redeems us. Now, get this. This is why I want you to understand. We have this this power that changes us immediately when we come to Christ. But we need to stay connected to him to continue to be, be connected to that power, yeah? Listen, that is why personal and corporate devotion is important. You don't come because you owe a debt to God. You don't read your your Bible because God's like sad if you don't read it. You don't pray because God's lonely. You do the devotion so that you can be changed. God isn't like waiting in the corner like, oh, no. No, you are the one who are not availing to yourself the resources that apply the divine nature to you. So we, we devote ourselves to God both personally and corporately because we're saying, God, change me. I need your help. And he is faithful to do that. See, we can see change in every area as Christ changes his people. Here's the crazy thing. Just within this room, within this room, there are people in a variety of callings, doing a variety of jobs. Now look at where you, well, look at your workplace, look at your family. Like, imagine if Christ Jesus changes you. What kind of ripple effect is that going to have in your work? What kind of ripple effect is that going to have in your family? Listen, we want some societal change, yeah? What what, what do we... Well, imagine if... If the city councilor has this, imagine if the manager has this, imagine if the clerk has this, imagine if the parent has this. If Christ recreates people in all of these different spheres and we start to live out the nature of Christ in that, we will see change. So we we show up to personal worship. We show up to corporate worship, crying out, God, change us. And then we go out and live our lives. And we see the power of Christ at work in us to go and change those around us. Beloved, that's the hope of the world. Christ Jesus working through his people to change and redeem. Let's pray. Lord Jesus I thank you so much for the clarity and truth of your word. I thank you that your word is, is, Lord, sometimes it stings, but it's accurate. Sometimes it hurts, but you only wound to heal. So, Lord God, I pray that you would heal us through your word. Lord God, just as you have spoken to us through the scriptures, Lord, I'm asking that you would speak the gospel word to us through communion. Lord, as we are about to take um, the bread and the cup, Lord, would you proclaim your good word to our hearts? Just as we take something physical, we remember that you, Jesus, physically suffered, physically died, physically rose again. Lord, would you continue to meet us as we worship? Amen.